Great. Thanks, guys. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for coming today. Uh, As we always uh, like to welcome people who are brand new, so if that's the case, uh, welcome to our church and welcome back to the the rest of you. Good to see you all. Um, We are in a series right now on the Gospel of John uh, and starting to wrap up the series. We're towards the end of the book where uh, as all four gospel accounts in the New Testament uh, really crescendo, we're looking at the cross and the resurrection uh, now uh, in these past several weeks and we'll continue to do that. Um, but looking at the crucifixion in particular, we're in week five of six, kind of taking a little bit of a, I want to say detour because we're kind of taking a deep dive, but not a detour in the sense that everything in the book, not just John, but in the Bible, has been leading to this point. Uh, we'll uh, kind of wrap it up next week, but this week actually is the moment of Jesus' death as well. I think Peter was alluding to that a second ago, um, where the last and final two sayings of Jesus, as John records them, uh, come out. So I kind of want to wrap the whole sermon around those two angles, the two final sayings of Christ, which are, I am thirsty and it is finished. I am thirsty and then finally it is finished before he bows his head, it says, and gives up his spirit. So with that said, let's just dive right in. Uh, John 19, 28 to 30 today, just uh, three short verses. Let's read and start uh, here in verse 28. It says, Later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that Scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. All right, so let's start with uh, the first of the the final two sayings, uh, which is, I am thirsty. Uh, John actually says in verse 28, uh, interestingly, so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty, uh, which uh, is interesting because it tells us that he's not just physically thirsty, but that he's aware that what he's saying would help fulfill scripture. Uh, Fulfill means complete. We use fulfill uh, kind of in tandem with prophecy a lot prophecy and fulfillment in theology, which means something that is stated or that happens or that is predictive uh, that Jesus comes later to kind of complete and be the finish line for. So it implies that things before Jesus had a goal or a greater idea, and that idea being Jesus himself. And so when we talk about fulfillment, we actually talk about replacement a lot of times. When Jesus fulfills something, he replaces the thing that comes before him. He kind of renders its job done. Uh, in its predictive role. Uh, and so when something's predicting, then that thing arrives, that thing that does the predicting takes a back seat, it sits down, it's done. And so Jesus here, uh, when he says, or John rather, when sc- that scripture's being fulfilled when Jesus says, I am thirsty, uh, points us backward into the scriptures that, that come before. But to the question of what scripture that Jesus is referring to here, that's a little less clear because it's not a direct quote of any one passage of the Bible. So if you guys have read maybe this, even just this particular subgenre of Scripture before, and even we've seen this in John and will next week as well, there's direct quotations sometimes when John or another author is saying, and Jesus fulfilled this Scripture, quote, uh, it's a you know, verbatim quote of something, end quote. There's a footnote maybe in some of your Bibles uh, saying exactly where to find it. This is not one of those places. It just says, I am thirsty. And it's not a direct quote of, of any one place in the Bible. But that's actually the point. Uh, Jesus here is not referring to one place, but, but many. 
Uh, and so what I, want, what I want to do for this first section of the sermon is walk us through a few places that this is likely referring to. It won't be exhaustive, uh, but the, the high points, I think. Some are more clear, and some are some uh, deeper cuts, which I'll get to uh, in, in a little bit. So um, one place he's probably referring to is Psalm 69, 21, uh, which is a psalm of David that says, They gave me sour wine to drink. Uh, and so that's one kind of direct kind of, um, uh, you know, a very... Uh, point A to point B. It's a very direct dot-to-dot connection there between an Old Testament song um, and Jesus being in the line of David, the original author of that psalm, the son of David, kind of reliving that out now as a suffering king, but one specifically who was given sour wine to drink by his enemies. Uh, also in view is probably Psalm 63.1, another psalm of David, which says, You, God, are my God. Earnestly I seek you. I thirst for you. My whole being longs for you. So remember, we talked about this last week in reference to Psalm 22. Jesus is fulfilling these very uh, forward-looking aspects to to the Psalms, the Old Testament Psalms. And what's helpful about Psalm 63 is it helps us answer the question, what is Jesus thirsting for exactly? And, And that is not just drink, with Psalm 63 in mind, not just drink, but he's also thirsting for his Father. As God the Son, he's thirsting for his Father, which implies he's suffering. And he's been separated from him on the cross as he bears our sin. I think this has come up even in recent weeks, but I'll say it again. One of the things that Jesus is doing in being separated as God the Son from God the Father is he's taking on exile. He's taking on this, um, uh, this, this punishment that we deserve, but also this kind of uh, impact of what happened when we sinned against him, and that is we were kicked out of the garden of his presence, like Adam and Eve, our, our, our first father and mother who sinned. And so Jesus here, by saying he's thirsting for his father, or in other gospels, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, which is a quote from Psalm 22, 1, uh, is, is implying that this type of suffering, or one aspect of his suffering, is that he's experiencing exile from God for exiled ones like us, so we don't have to worry about being expulsed from his presence anymore. But it also implies that he's thirsting for his Father's will to be done. Uh, Hence, um, John's inclusion of the phrase there in verse 28, that everything, knowing that everything had now been finished. That's kind of a key thing there, I think. Jesus knowing that he was about to die, knowing that everything uh, was about to be be put into place and to be completed, uh, he said, I am thirsty. And so I think that with Psalm 63, one in mind, uh, together indicate that He's thirsting for God's will to be accomplished, his will being the salvation of sinners uh, like us. So the gospel in this is Jesus is thirsting for your salvation. He's gasping for it with his final breath. I think with the cross in mind uh, and with, again, the help of Psalm 63, you could say that the cross shows us that Jesus wants us to be saved more than we want to. Uh, any kind of thirst that you have had for God or salvation, and I say that to those of you who are Christian or not, uh, but specifically to Christians though, any kind of thirst that you have had or currently have for God or for salvation, Jesus had it more for us on our behalf. And so that leads me to this next thing, which is um, Jesus says, I am thirsty, might also be referring back to John 4, 
when he went to the well to get a drink. He was thirsty earlier in his ministry, and, and this woman from Samaria was there. They had this great conversation. I'm not going to go back and revisit that, but there's this moment where she uh, gets water from the well and, and gives it to him. And after that, he said to her, everyone who drinks this water, this physical water, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. So John 19, in one sense, then, is the fulfillment of that initial thirsting. Jesus, basically, if you want to look at it this way, got thirsty twice in this book. Once at the well with the woman and a second time here on the cross. So the former thing is an earlier scripture. Uh, he's fulfilling everything. Even the earlier parts of the gospel accounts, he's fulfilling them as well. Not just the Old Testament, uh, but these earlier stories that he lived out uh, and kind of spoke and lived into existence that, um, that pointed to this very moment right here. So John 19 is the fulfillment of that initial thirsting. But when we see that Jesus had a concern for our quenching when he talks to the woman, not just her quenching, but our quenching too, when he talks about this deeper, heavenly, uh, spiritual quen- uh, thirst that we all have in the spiritual water. Elsewhere in John 7, he talks about this river of life that will flow uh, from him uh, into our hearts and from our hearts as well to all who believe in him. Um, so he kind of dials it up there in John 7. But when, when we see that Jesus has a concern for our quenching, then what we see here on the cross is a substitutionary twist. So if you're here last week, we talked about how Jesus was stripped naked on the cross that we might be clothed by his grace. Uh, this week, he becomes thirsty that we might be quenched. Uh, this is crucial to see. Uh, his provision of spiritual drink for us comes at the highest of cost to him, like it would in a lesser way for us if we were to buy a drink for another person, spending that they might receive freely. I mean, I was thinking this week, almost any time we receive a drink, it's at the cost of uh, of something for, uh, uh, at, the, at the hand of someone else, you know, e- even if it's like someone who works in a water treatment plant, uh, you know, or all the way to someone who installed a spigot on the side of our house or a faucet in our house or a server bringing water to our table in a restaurant or something. There's almost always, we don't think about this a lot, but there's almost always a, co- a hidden cost to us receiving a drink. And we see this all the time in our life. And what Jesus is doing here, kind of by way of the conversation to the Samaritan woman, is he's saying, I am the one paying that ultimate cost. Every kind of drink you've ever received from someone else that costs them something uh, that you might receive freely, I'm fulfilling all of that. All of it finds its yes in me. I'm becoming thirsty so that you might be quenched. I'm spending that you might uh, receive freely. So the gospel in that, is his death means that we aren't parched for salvation anymore. Uh, Even if we feel parched for God or feel parched for eternal life or feel distant from him, the gospel is, through the lens of John 19, we still have it because he got thirsty on the cross. And so the gospel is not work hard to quench your own thirst, nor is it to try and get thirsty uh, for the sake of others, to deny ourselves maybe, and and to show ourselves worthy to God. Uh, That's not the gospel. The gospel is receive from the one who thirsted in your place. Or even just more simply, we're thirsty, but the Bible says the solution to that is Jesus got thirsty. 
for us. That's kind of the spin that Christianity puts on all of our problems is it doesn't say, it doesn't give us a path to solving our own problems as though if you live this way or do this thing uh, or or, uh, abstain from this particular sin that all your problems will go away. It says God will take care of your problems wholesale and he'll do that by taking on the darkness of what we're currently experiencing and in this case thirst. Jesus became thirsty for thirsty ones like you and me, spiritually speaking. We're thirsty for God. Uh, We cry out to him, but we can't solve that problem. In fact, Psalm 63 on a human level then, we talked about as though it's the the prayer of Jesus ahead of time, a second ago, but on a human level, if it's our cry for God, like I thirst for you, I want to be with you, but the implication is I can't do that though. I can't thirst enough. I can't uh, prove my worth. I can't climb to you. I can't ascend. I can't not sin enough. Uh, and so the, the answer to the question, really, of Psalm 63 is here in John 19. The answer is God saying, I will get thirsty for you. I will suffer. I will substitute myself for you on the cross and taking all your sins away so that you can actually be quenched uh, once and once and for all. All right, so with those first two things said, I think those might be the more obvious things, not, the, not exhaustive, but the most obvious things that, that John and Jesus are referring to when they say, I am thirsty. But there are a couple other deeper cuts uh, here as well. So the first one is in uh, verse 29, which says, a jar of wine vinegar was there. So they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus's lips. All right, so this kind of would have looked sort of like this. This is Crude drawing, of course, uh, it's abstract, but in, in the cross is probably a bit too high, so the stalk is too high. Uh, it would have been a lot lower to the ground. But this gives you an idea of kind of what it would have looked like. The soldiers overseeing the crucifixion uh, attached a sponge soaked in uh, wine, and they attached it somehow to this hyssop, uh, hyssop plant with a stalk, and they held it up to Jesus's um, lips, all right? So uh, over their heads to Jesus's mouth, he tasted it, it says, uh, before the moment of, of his death. Now, the reason why this is an important detail is because of how remarkably similar it is to the Exodus events uh, in the Old Testament when the ancient Israelites took lamb's blood, another kind of red liquid, like wine, put it on hyssop branches as well, and held it up over their heads and painted it on the tops and sides of the wooden door frames of the front doors of their homes. It was a I said a couple of weeks ago, it was a mark of protection from the final plague that God was promising to the Egyptians, which was the death of the firstborn, the tenth of ten plagues. Um, this is, in a lot of ways, this moment was the preeminent event of the Exodus. Uh, maybe aside from the passing through the sea itself, it was, this, this was the preeminent moment of the, of the escape of the Israelites from Egyptian oppression. So it would have looked kind of like this here. Um, Now, we've been connecting these dots a lot in this series, but this is another glimpse into how the Bible tells us that the Bible is a tale of two exoduses, how Jesus is the final Passover lamb whose blood is being spilt and whose blood that we now paint over the door frames of our heart in order to be spared judgment. Jesus is not just the Passover lamb. He's the final death of the firstborn. He's taking, because he's God's firstborn, one and only son. Uh, The firstborn, the Bible calls him uh, uh, elsewhere in different uh, references. But he's taking on the plague 
for, for us. And so the idea is that Jesus is enacting this whole thing again. When we become Christians, this is what we do. We take his blood and we paint it over the door frames of our hearts so that when God sees the blood, his judgment passes over us. Uh, judgment for sin comes on him and not on us. All right, so John is saying here then, uh, see in the motion of the soldiers holding up red wine on hyssop over their heads to Jesus' mouth, a glimpse that the new exodus is here, the new escape from sin and death at high cost to Jesus that the Old Testament has been longing for for centuries. It is now here. Belief in Jesus' blood, painting that over our hearts, belief that this is the only way out, the only escape, as it was in kind of an early physical, uh, typological way for the Israelites. Now this is really true because that story pointed to this one. This is the only escape from the Egypt of our sin and the Egypt of being exiled from the promised land of God and the Egypt of death and the Egypt of uh, demonic oppression. Uh, All of that, the way out is through Jesus' spilt lamb-like blood. Remember John 1.29, when John the Baptist looks at Jesus and says, Behold the Lamb of God who's taken away the sins of the world. Uh, this is that moment. And John's way of even just writing the motion of this, uh, it would have been reminiscent uh, that, guess what? Uh, the, the lambs, this happened on Passover too, remember. Jesus is dying on Passover uh, when lambs' bloods were being spilled all over the, the, the region and, and, and country. Um, when, 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 when the wine is being held up, it's reminiscent of the blood being painted again um, over the door frames of, of the hearts of the world. All right? The other deeper cut has to do with Samson, the story of Samson. Uh, Samson was a deliverer figure, a savior figure in the book of Judges in the Old Testament. Some of you may know the story, even just like peripherally or traditionally, uh, he was the really strong guy, basically. Uh, if if uh, Solomon was the really smart guy in the Old Testament, uh, Samson uh, takes the cake for um, being um, the, the strongest man in, in the, in the, on the earth. So what's that competition they do, strongest man? Uh, what is it called? Strongest man in the universe? What is it called? <laughs> you know, it's like ESPN 2 or 3 or 4 or whatever. Those, those like, <laughs> really, uh, yeah, speaking of deep cuts, right? But anyway. Uh, but Samson wins that, like, I mean, any, any day of the week. Uh, God, so basically, as the story goes, God gives him the strength to single-handedly push back armies of opponents of God's people. Uh, it, it, at one point, he tears apart lions with his bare hands. Um, but as the story goes, he lost that strength. It actually says at one point in, John, in Judges 15 that he thirsted. Uh, And that's our initial point of connection with Jesus is that he's another thirsty savior figure in the Old Testament. But he was dragged away by his enemies, tortured, uh, and placed inside the the worship palace of a false god named Dagon for the people to mock and to laugh at. He was kind of like a a sideshow or something at their party. Uh, The story ends by Samson asking God to strengthen him one last time. I think at this point his eyes were gouged out. He was blind. Uh, but he asks God to strengthen him one last time, and God does. And, and Samson stands up and puts all of his weight um, into these two load-bearing pillars on his right and on his left, and he pushes into them, uh, bringing, the, bringing the whole building down, the whole temple down, 
on uh, top of God's people, but killing Samson as well in the process. It, it would have looked so something like this. Um, pushing apart these pillars um, and load-bearing ones and, and the whole thing uh, coming down on top of his head. So it could have looked um, like this too as, as well. So Samson, again, he was a thirsty savior. He was dragged away. He was the strongest who became the weakest. Um, and, but through his weakness and this momentary strength he's given again, he saves God's people from uh, uh, another form of, um, of oppression. Now, um, visually, not to mention the words I just basically summarized for you, but visually, does that look like anything to you guys? Maybe a little bit like this, right? Um, the connection is especially seen when we add that both Samson and Jesus, quote, both bowed their heads at the moment of their deaths, hands stretched out, and sacrificially gave their life in order to save others. Uh, you guys know that uh, phrase that's often repeated in the Old Testament, uh, with, a, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, uh, God saves. It's repeated often in, in the narratives of the Old Testament as well as the Psalms. Um, well, this is where God outstretches his arm. This is the, the ultimate place where God dies with a, a mighty nail-pierced hand and an outstretched arm, uh, giving his life in the process, right, uh, to destroy the enemies of God's people and, and to save us um, through it all. Okay, so now you still might be thinking, well, so what? Um, why does all this matter? Uh, the, the answer is much more of the Bible is about the cross than you think it is. Much more of the Bible is about the cross than any of us are naturally inclined to think. It is central to the story. It is the story. The Bible says over and over and over again that your salvation came at a cost. We are liberated by way of another's suffering. Um, the, the point of Samson is not be Samson. The Bible never says the point is to, if we just pray enough, God will make us strong and we can slay our sins. That's not what it means. The point of Samson is Jesus is Samson. Uh, the, the, the point of Samson is to, to, to image a savior figure who is not you. You are not strong enough to destroy your sins. You are not strong enough, nor will you ever be, nor will I, to destroy our sins or to stay in relationship or covenant with God. This is much bigger than you and I. Uh, if we're in the story in Judges, and we are, we're the people that benefit from this act of bravery, benefit from this act of sacrifice. We're the ones who watch from afar, who see the building come down on the Savior figure and think, but he's supposed to be the strong one. These kind of questions, you know, if we're, even if we're Christians, we might look at the cross and say, but, but he, he's the strong one. These, these, kind of, these kind of questions rightly kind of fill our mind as readers sometimes, and it certainly did for the disciples. Wait a minute, you're the Messiah, you're the Son of God. You, you never get weak. And we see that in the story. No one could touch Jesus, just like no one could touch Samson uh, it, until Jesus allowed it, right? So again, the gospel here is, it's not your suffering, not your sacrifice, not your thirst, not your strength, but someone else's that saves you and me. Um, the, the, the Passover lamb and Samson are whispers, but now the earlier stories of the Bible are finally finding their true meaning. Jesus came, the highest and strongest, who became the lowest and most tortured. He came, like Samson, he came to collapse the house of sin on top of himself, that we might be spared. And so that we who believe don't have to worry 
ever again about it collapsing on us. You don't have to worry when you're a Christian, can I lose this thing? Did I really believe enough in the first place? Uh, Is this about me maintaining what God has given? Do I have to reciprocate it? You don't have to have those worries anymore. God, God did everything. Jesus did everything. Samson, in a typical sense, even a shadowy sense, did everything. It even says in the story, every one of the enemies of God's people were destroyed. Uh, and he destroyed more with his death than he did in his, uh, Samson, than when he did in his kind of pre-death uh, ministry, which is a really cool, I think, uh, Jesus-y thing as well. Jesus did more here on the cross than he did at, at any given point in his earthly ministry. He, he did much more for you there than when he walked on water or delivered the demonized or healed the sick. Uh, this is the pinnacle moment. This is the most important thing he ever did. And it's, it, the Bible's clear about this. Even in the Old Testament, when it predicts it, it's clear. This is the most important thing we need to put our trust in. So again, we who believe don't have to worry. No matter how much we sin, no matter how much we stumble or fall, if we believe in Jesus, we don't have to worry about the, the, the temple of sin that we've built brick by brick over our life uh, and our hands are still full of mortar. Um, we don't have to worry about it collapsing on us. Jesus went in. He, he brought it down at great cost to himself because he loves you guys and he loves me us. He loves us uh, so much that he, that he did that for us. That's what, the, that's what this is saying. All right, then let's move on to this uh, last saying, which is, it is finished. Let me read this again. Uh, it says, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. All right, <clears throat> lots to say about this. If there was uh, uh, an Old Testament passage here to look back to, I, w- I would uh, throw out there Genesis 2.2. Uh, which says uh, when God was making everything in the world and universe, it says uh, when, he, when he finished his work, uh, he rested. And I think in the same way, Jesus, in a, John has a very uh, new creation bent to it. Uh, John has a lot of creation. The whole book starts that way. Remember, in the beginning was the word, John 1.1, 1, 1, just like Genesis starts with in the beginning uh, was, well, the, there was God. Um, uh, and so, like, it's a very second creation kind of gospel. So it makes sense that we'd have second creation imagery here as well. Just like God finished his work in the beginning on the first creation, he's finishing his work here in the second creation right before he's going to be buried and rest on the Sabbath day. Uh, so more on that in, in the coming weeks. Um, but aside from that, I would just say uh, this, this is a great part of, of this whole thing to slow down and think about this. Uh, Peter gave a helpful summary before that last song, but I, I would add, um, it is finished means there's nothing else to add. Uh, th- this, this idea of it is finished is the death knell in the notion that Jesus' death was a moral example to follow. It's a death knell in the notion that his death is only part of what saves us. It's the death knell in the notion that his death and resurrection are just the beginning of Christianity, but not the end, as if we pick up where he left off or something. It is finished is the bell toll that marks the death of those ideas uh, wholesale. Uh, We still entertain them, but they're not real. They're not actual Christianity. Like actual Christianity is it is finished without asterisk. So Jesus' final words on the cross are not in progress, in other words. Uh, dot, 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 uh, right? Uh, there's no ellipsis. Um, it, it, instead, his final words are, this is the very end of all the work I've been doing to save sinners. 
Everything is in place. It's perfect. No more needs to be done. Uh, Like a finished art project would be ruined if a two-year-old took a sharpie to it, so does any attempt to add to the Mona Lisa of the cross simply serve as an unnecessary blemish. Uh, Stephen Paulson says, God hides in order to not be found where humans want to find him. But God also hides in order to be found where he wills to be found. This is saying um, humans tend to want to find God in unfinished works. This is kind of our natural predisposition. We expect to find him in things that are in progress or unfinished, things that we think we can cooperate with him on. Um, and so it means we want teacher saviors. We want flattery. Uh, we want to cooperate uh, with him in some capacity. But, but the cross, this is saying the cross is the hiddenness of God to the proud and to those who would, who would think they would work for him. Uh, the Bible calls us elsewhere the rock of offense. This is the offense of the rock of Christ. If the gospel has no offense, it's not a real gospel. Uh, it was offensive. This, this notion is offensive uh, to the proud. It's why the Jews had such a hard time hearing that God didn't actually live in their temple. The thing that they built with the works of their hands, which represented all of their religious and law-abiding effort. Uh, the Bible says Old and New Testament, actually, It says, God doesn't live in things made by human hands. God is not found in your good works. He's not found in in what you do. If he's the source by the Spirit, if he's doing these things, which is how Christians actually think of good works, then that's a game changer. That's different. But in terms of just us, in terms of our strength, our flesh, God is not found, not, not his home. He's found apart from those things, outside the city of those things, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. But this is the essence of all hope. It's the rock of offense. We trip over it in our pride, the Bible says. But it's also simultaneously the essence of all hope. That Jesus is found in a finished work so that no one can ever add anything to him ever. And that's another reason that it's so important that Jesus said it is finished because we don't tend to enjoy unfinished works right? When something's unfinished, we tend to work. But when it's finished, sit back and and enjoy it. It's like those cheesy uh, Home Depot commercials where, you know, this couple paints their living room and then the the last scene is they collapse back on their couch with a glass of wine and they're so happy, right? Uh, That's because it's finished. It's done. They can actually just look at it and enjoy it. Well, it is finished means look. It means rest. It means Watch, enjoy, and have peace, but for the love of God, do not pick up a paintbrush. Look, watch, don't add. Live out of, but don't contribute. But as the story of our lives go, as Christians, all of us live more than maybe we like to admit, as though Jesus didn't say it is finished on the cross. We put an asterisk by it, or maybe a yeah, but... Well, yeah, but Jesus still gave the Great Commission, right? Or yeah, but there's still other things in in the New Testament. Um, And so we add those things onto it all the time. But invariably, um, without a helpful gospel check to all of that, that way of thinking leads to all kinds of anxiety and fear and pride and bad theology and wrongly motivated good works 
and just awful Christian spirituality. And so this isn't, it is finished is not something that Jesus just says historically. It's something he says to you individually in love. Have you guys ever read it that way before? Like it is finished, it's easy to read that and think, well, yeah, I know he historically said that about something kind of objective and cosmic and big picture. And yes, amen, that is so true and it's good news that that's true. He's also saying this to you. This is a love letter. Like, what if you read it that way? What if, what if it is finished was something he's saying to you uh, with your name right in front of it? Like, it is finished. I've, I've done it. It's completely done. Um, how would that shape your day-to-day spirituality? God is saying in John 19 to all of us today, wherever you're at spiritually, I have finished the work of your salvation. It's 100% completed, past, present, and future. Rest in that. Breathe in the free air of that. Share that with others. Resist the devil with it. Let that free you up to love other people. But never think that you can pay me back or that your level of moral prowess is somehow accentuating my bloody death. What I've said is finished. And when I say things are finished, they truly are finished. My grace is sufficient for you. That's Jesus' words for you through John 19. For you. Not conceptually, way out here. That's what he's saying to us. He wants us to hear him say that over us individually so that we won't add anything to him ever. I'll close with this final word from verse 30. Um, again, because this is, this is the moment of Jesus' death, we'll look at some kind of like immediate outflows of this next week and as we wrap up this kind of mini-series in the crucifixion. But it says, With that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And it's important the gospel writers choose to write it this way because what kind of language is gave up language? What does that imply? What kind of language is that? It's gift language, right? It's generosity language. Jesus wasn't forced. His spirit wasn't taken from him. His arm wasn't twisted. Uh, He gave it up when he was ready to give it up. That's what this is saying. Uh, But he also gave it to us. He gave his life away. It's gift language. It doesn't say Jesus put his spirit on the auction table for the highest bidder. It says he gave it, free of charge, never, ever, ever to be worked for, but only received and reveled in by sinners everywhere. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you for uh, this verse, this passage today. Thank you for um, the, the scriptures that, that set up the story so beautifully. Thank you for how Jesus so, so uh, eloquently and clearly fulfill and serve as the final and better word um, of all the songs and uh, narratives and uh, even animals and um, escape stories of the Old Testament. They're all in some way about, about him. Uh, Jesus, we thank you for making that clear through your final words, carefully chosen words um, that served as scriptural fulfillment, but also to teach us about you, teach us about theology. Um, and so God, grow us as the Bible says elsewhere, in our most holy faith, uh, mature us 
uh, in how we grow and get strong in the grace of God and in how we live out of the fact that it's finished, not with anxiety-ridden hearts seeking to do more, do more, do more, and, and be better and prove to you our devotion and worth and just lose our absolute minds in the process. Uh, but you have a better word for us. Your word is, it is finished. Your word, your word to Mary who sat at your feet was, she has chosen the good portion. And Martha, the busybody, needed to hear that. Um, so, and we're all Martha. Uh, and so, Father, serve as that better word. Of, of it is finished, um, and help us to sit back on the couch of salvation and enjoy the view, enjoy that the project is done, and we didn't do anything uh, to, to work for it. It's been given. Um, you, you gave up your spirit. Uh, as Isaiah 55 says, uh, come uh, to the waters, uh, those who are thirsty, buy uh, and eat and drink without price and without cost. Uh, the, the freeness of the gospel is crucial because of how much it puts our, uh, our works to the side, our religious effort to the side. When free gift is talked about, uh, it, it puts aside the paychecks. The idea of wages are set aside uh, for the sake of inheritance and uh, as you call your salvation elsewhere, which is worked for by you, not by us, but also the ones who receive that gift. Uh, we we thank you that you are that generous to us. You're that good. You're that much of a spender. You spared no expense at all to save us, but gave your one and only son up, God, that we might live. Uh, help us to believe in him and paint his blood over the doorposts of our heart uh, to be saved. In Christ we pray. Amen.